0: We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePayre, Missouri. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePayre, Missouri. It's very good to have all of you here this morning, and a welcome to all of you who are listening via KFUO radio. Welcome. It's good to have you with us this morning. My name is Jerry Bodie, I am a member here at St. Paul's and I teach in the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis. We call this the Bible Class Hour, but as many of you know from the last several weeks we've been doing a a little survey of the history of the early Christian Church. Today, this morning, is our last session for this class, so we're going to be wrapping things up this morning. Last week, we talked about the creeds. We talked about both baptismal creeds, creeds that were used uh, to confess the Christian faith when people were baptized. Some of those were very simple creeds, as we heard. We also talked about the other creeds, for example, the Apostles' Creed, and then the creeds that were produced out of councils of the church, like the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. Last week, we also talked about the Regula Fide, the Rule of Faith. There were many different rules of faith in the early church, which were kind of like summaries of the Christian faith told in narrative form. They were a little bit like creeds, but often much longer than a creed, and they would tell the basics of the Christian faith, the story of salvation in Jesus. Those were widely used and disseminated in the early church. And then finally, last time, we began to talk about the earliest Christian monks, who uh, were people who went off to live, often in isolated places like a desert, to live the kind of life that they believed that God had called them to live, a Christ-like life uh, away from temptation and sin. Of course, as we saw, that didn't always work, because people came out to follow them out into the desert and wanted to learn from them and talk to them. But this is how the early monasteries or monastic communities were, were established. Those Christian monks... We're trying to live a life that they believe that they found an example of in the scriptures. And so that was, a, I think, important thing to remember. They were trying to live out the teachings of the scriptures in their daily lives. Well, we're going to hear more about people living out the teachings of Jesus in, in their daily lives today. We're going to be talking about persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. We're going to be talking about Christian martyrdom. And we'll be talking also about the Emperor Constantine and his introduction, uh, or his conversion to Christianity and his uh, edict of toleration. We'll see how Christianity really becomes a, a, a very significant force in the early, uh, in the, in the, uh, really by the early 4th century. And we'll look ahead a little bit more at what will become of Christianity within the Roman Empire. So we're going to be starting today by talking a little bit about What is going on in the Roman Empire in the late 3rd century and the beginning of the 4th century? As you remember, our class is really going up until the time of Constantine. Constantine dies in the year 337 A.D. So we're kind of getting up into that later time period for our course. Well, by the beginning of the 4th century, Christianity had been in the Roman Empire for more than 250 years that's a long time and it still did not have any official status in the empire but during those two hundred and fifty years both the roman empire and christianity had changed a lot during that time the empire was going through a very difficult period we talked at the beginning of this class about the roman peace the pax romana this was a, a period of time from the late first century bc until about 200, 250 A.D., when things were going well in the Roman Empire. There was peace, uh, good administration, and so forth. Well, that, that time has now passed. Part of the problem that the Romans faced was administering this huge empire and trying to keep everything together. It was a very difficult thing to do. The empire faced almost constant hostile invasion from the outside. These would be like barbarian armies from uh, northern Europe or from the west. Uh, They would come in and make invasions and and runs into the Roman Empire and defeat its armies. The armies were having a difficult time. They were being defeated all too frequently. And many times soldiers decided they didn't want to be in the army anymore and they would desert and go off and leave the army weakened. The Roman Empire also had to deal with internal problems, internal conflict. There were a series of civil wars in the late 3rd and early 4th century. As we'll see, uh, Constantine himself was involved in one of these civil wars. There's a lot of political fragmentation. Things are beginning to come apart. The empire's finances were in a shambles. They, were, they weren't able to pay their bills and they were in debt. This whole old system of imperial administration really had not been updated to meet the new challenges that the empire was facing. And the empire, the administrative system was inefficient. And there were all kinds of social problems. The populace uh, was uh, engaged in little revolutions and all kinds of strife and tension. My, My point is that the empire was weakening and there was a lot of uncertainty about the future. At the same time that this is happening, the Christian church has been growing rapidly and really unexpectedly. Uh, historians have estimated that by the beginning of the fourth century that there were about 10 to 12 million Christians in the Roman Empire. The empire probably had about 120, 130 million people at the time. So about 10 percent of the people in the Roman Empire were Christians. And this growth drew a lot of attention of the Roman officials and really their their scrutiny. They were concerned about this rapid growth of this new Christian religion. And the emperors in particular began to recognize Christianity as something that was not only taking hold throughout the empire, but it seemed to be having a, a big impact on the empire and it wasn't necessarily positive as far as the Roman emperors were concerned. Now again the problem is that the empire was coming apart so this is a time of crisis and many believed that the empire needed the support and the protection of the ancient Roman gods. We have to go back, they said, we gotta go back to the true old religion. Uh, And that, then, will help us put a stop to everything that's hurting the empire, whether from without or from within. So they want to put, the emperors in particular, who are uh, given the task of supporting the Roman Empire and, and even its religion, wanted to stop anything that would hurt the empire. And then you take the Christian religion, the Christian faith, with its exclusive claims about God, and the Christian refusal to worship the Roman gods and Christian refusal to honor the imperial cult. Remember that there was this whole worship of the Roman emperors and people were supposed to offer sacrifices to them. And Christians refused to do that. The Christians worshiped one god and apparently not the Roman emperor. So Christians began to see be as the enemy for some Romans, especially the emperor. So they began to take steps to stop Christianity on a large scale, and to punish the Christians. Now, I want to go back and talk just a little bit about the uh, the early persecution of Christians. We haven't talked about this very much. Uh, at, at the very beginning of the, uh, the when Christianity was beginning to spread in the first century, it was going out into the Roman em- Empire. The the Roman government was rather tolerant of of Christianity, as long as it didn't encourage sedition or weaken Roman values. There were exceptions to this. We know about uh, Peter and Paul, for example, who were martyred in the, in the 60s, first century AD. And there were other examples of people who were uh, died giving witness to their faith. But for the most part, the Roman Empire was not really cracking down on Christianity that much. In these early days, early centuries, there were sporadic persecutions of Christians uh, often this would take place with Roman imperial approval, it sanctioned, yeah, that's fine, go ahead, but it really took place at the local level. In cities, in certain regions, there would be persecutions. For example, uh, we know that there were persecutions under the Roman emperor Domitian at the end of the first century, and under the Roman emperors Trajan and Hadrian in the early second century. There were also Persecutions under the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius later on in the 2nd century. Usually these persecutions were prompted by the Roman demand to worship this imperial cult, to offer sacrifices to the emperor. And sometimes they might be very simple little things like burning some incense to honor and respect the emperor. That was the demand, and Christians refused. So there was that problem of of refusal to cooperate with the Roman demand or Roman uh, demand to worship. But there were other problems as well. Sometimes Christians were simply blamed for anything that went wrong. Uh, Whether it be a bad harvest or you you name it, they would get blamed for it. Uh, The early church father, Tertullian, who was in in north africa made a sarcastic comment about this in the second century he said if the tiber river rises too high or the nile river is too low the cry is the christians to the lion and then he adds all of them to a single lion well the problem is that Christianity continues to spread. You know, I've got a map on the screen here, and you can see the darker areas that are kind of orange are the areas where uh, Christianity is really taking hold. You can see, for example, that, that uh, there are places in the, um, in, in the Palestine, especially in Syria and in Asia Minor, in North Africa and various places in Italy, the darker areas are what you see, these are concentrations of Christians by around the year 300. The lighter areas in yellow, would be where Christian, Christianity is by the 6th century. So as you can see, it's spreading very quickly. Here's another map that kind of does the same thing with the areas of green is where the Christians are. The more Christians there are, the more attention that they get, and the more uh, there will be an interest in, in persecuting them. I want to give you some examples some of some of the early Christian martyrs. Uh, there's so many of them that we could talk about. But I want to give you just a few that I think are, are fairly well-known and, and prominent. The first is, uh, is an example of the persecution of an early Christian bishop, kind of like a, a senior pastor. Uh, we've had a number of the people that we've talked about in this class already were actually martyred. We talked about Ignatius, for example, who was uh, a bishop in Antioch. He was martyred, uh, killed by lions we have another example here of, uh, of a martyr in the second century and this was of the uh, polycarp who was the bishop of smyrna this is in asia minor polycarp had been a disciple of the apostle john so he had heard all about jesus and the gospel message from john himself and the uh, roman empire in that particular area the roman governor decided he was going to crack down on anyone who would not worship the Emperor. And, and Polycarp's uh, sin, if you will, in, in the eyes of the Emperor, is that he refused to offer incense. refused to burn incense to the Emperor. And so uh, the word got out about him and he was to be arrested. Some of the Christians in his church uh, took Polycarp, they, they grabbed him and they went and they hid him for a while and tried to keep him safe. And then somebody they found out where he was, and so they had to go and hide in another place. And the Roman officials found him there. And so finally, Polycarp decided, look, I'm not going to fight this. If God, if God wants me to, to be arrested and to bear witness to him and his truth, then that's what it will be. And so he, he was arrested and put on trial, which was just kind of a joke of a trial. And he was uh, uh, sentenced to death by burning supposed to be burned to death so they put him in the in the arena and they set the fire he was in there and they set the fire around him and the fire burned and the fire burned and burned and burned and according to the the legend of his martyrdom polycarp didn't burn (laughs) the flames did not touch him and they waited and waited and nothing happened and nothing happened until finally one of the soldiers came forward in with a spear and he was pierced with a spear you can see here in the picture that I've got, it's maybe difficult for you to see. You can see Polycarp in the center, in the middle of the flames off to the right. You can see someone pointing at this to a Roman soldier who has a spear. In other words, you better go and finish him off. Now, you know, it's one thing to, to. Uh, let me say it this way. Killing a bishop, a Christian bishop, gets a lot of attention. Uh, it's bad enough if uh, if, you know, someone else is persecuted but a bishop gets a lot of attention and the word spread uh... with all of these bishops when they were when they were put to death and there were other christians then that would follow i want to give you another example of, of early christian martyrs and this is the martyrdom of two ladies from north africa named perpetua and felicitas Now, perpetua was a noble woman And Felicitas was her slave. Felicitas had been married, but her husband had died. These were both rather young women. So Felicitas is a widow. And they were caught up in the persecutions of Emperor Septimius Severus in the year 203 AD. Septimius Severus was the Roman emperor who had forbidden, he was somewhat willing to be tolerant of the Christian religion, but he said, all right, that's it. We're going to put a stop to the spread of Christianity. No more conversions. No one else can convert. Uh, And if anyone converts, then then we'll, we'll find out, we'll get them. Well, Perpetua and Felicitas, as well as several other men who were with them in, in North Africa, were all catechumens. They were all learning the Christian faith in the church. They had not yet been baptized, and someone turned them in, said they're Christians, they're becoming Christians, they're converting, and they're going to be baptized, and and they were arrested. They were all baptized in prison. Perpetua was 22 years old, and a mother of an infant that she was still nursing. Felicitas was pregnant. And gave birth to a baby in the prison. And by the way, the the two babies were were given to someone else to take care of. They were put on trial for the crime of conversion to Christianity. And they were all put to death in the arena in Carthage. And here you can see some of the men. I don't know if you can see their hands are actually holding crowns. Symbolize the crown of life that they're receiving. And they're wearing white robes, which is a symbol of martyrdom and here's a picture of the arena in Carthage these were public spectacles and we'll talk more about that uh, a little bit how were they executed or how were they put to death well first animals were made to attack them they had a wild boar uh, that that went out and chased them around they had a, a bear there and the, the bear refused to come out of his cage did not participate they had a leopard the leopard did the leopard went out and uh, and killed first of all attacked the guards the Romans were attacked by the wild animals first and when they were done with them then they went over and attacked one of the Christians and killed him and then they sent out a, a wild bull who went out supposed to attack and, and gore people and so forth, and that the the, the animals injured some of the, the people that the Christians, but eventually um, they were put to death by the sword. This is this is murder. This is cruel murder, clear and simple. And they made a spectacle out of it. The thing that they made a spectacle out of it, I think, is important to note because. The stories of these martyrs and the witness that they gave as they were being killed uh, was something that spread. And the stories were retold and retold and written down. We know a lot about the martyrdom of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. We know a lot about the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas because people wrote it down and told all the stories. And those stories were spread the, again, the early church father, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Romans thought that they were, they were wiping out Christianity by killing Christians, and, and what actually happened was that they were spreading it, and more and more people came. We'll talk more about why that, that is in, in a little bit. These kinds of persecutions, again, done at the local level, continued well into the 3rd century. However, by the mid-3rd century, the suppression of Christianity as a religion expanded significantly. Persecution was no longer a local matter, but emperors began to issue empire-wide edicts against the Christian church as a whole. And this occurred... Uh, in the year, first under the year 250 A.D. under the emperor Decius, and then again another edict by the next emperor, Valerian. And the final measures were put in place by the emperor Diocletian in the year 303, and they extended across the entire empire. And this uh, persecution under Diocletian would last 11 years, and would be known as the great persecution. Now I want to stop or pause just a little bit and begin to talk about something a little bit different here. Let's try to get into the mind of Diocletian a little bit. Not that it's a place that we really want to go, but but I think it might be helpful to kind of understand what the Romans are up to here. By by the reign of the emperor Diocletian who ruled from 284 to 305. The empire was still to a very large extent, the Empire was a polytheistic society. People believed that there were many gods in the world, and that these gods required worship and reverence and expressions of thanks and adoration. These gods were real, the people believed, and the work they worked to please the gods, and they avoided doing anything that would displease. Gods. You don't want to make them mad because they start doing things or not doing what you want them to do. Now often these religious practices were determined by tradition at the local level. Okay. Uh, specific gods, for example, might be worshipped at specific places and other gods might be worshipped everywhere in the empire. But polytheism, this belief in and worship of multiple gods, meant that the gods themselves were not united they're not necessarily all on the same side Uh, and they're not really interested in unity these gods were not regarded as equal among themselves some were high gods like jupiter Uh, some were rather low gods not very important just kind of regional types Uh, some were were uh, simply local gods other were imperial gods but they were all superior to human beings. These gods were believed to be present with humans in the world every day, to stand close by them, uh, especially those who worshipped them. And for those people who did worship them, these gods were, were supposed to be able to provide the good things of life. And very importantly, the Romans believed that these gods protected the Roman Empire. So. All of these gods together played a role in maintaining the strength and the power of the Roman Empire. Now, if you think about this, you can understand why, in the Roman mind, you need all the gods, and you need all of them happy. Uh, Because some of the gods might take care of, say, the physical health of the emperor. Other gods might cause the armies to be victorious in battle. Some of the gods might provide for a good and plentiful harvest. Some other gods might take care of a travel prosperous commerce. Gods might send rain and a healthy climate. This is what I'm getting at here. You need all of those gods to take care of everything that you need in the world, nature, and if you're an empire. You really need everything working properly. Let me give you an example here. Uh, if the Roman navy Won a sea battle, everyone would want to make sure to make a thank offering to the god Neptune. In Greek, he was Poseidon. Neptune is the god of the city and of naval warfare, especially, well, you hope it'll be successful. If you make him mad, then he might be the god of unsuccessful naval warfare. So you've got to get on his right side. Another example. If the Romans were helping, or if the Romans were hoping for a, a plentiful harvest, they would be sure to worship the goddess Ceres, the Great Eater. Ceres, for the Romans, is the goddess of agriculture and grain. Uh, we get the English word cereal from the goddess Ceres. This is uh, someone put a, uh, a commemoration of the goddess Ceres in this mosaic on the floor of their home. So the point is you need all of these gods to do everything that you need. They don't have one god that does everything. They have a bunch of different gods that do things that you need them to do. So the Emperor Diocletian is a very devout worshipper of the Roman pantheon of gods. He took the Roman religion very seriously and in the year 302 Diocletian declared. This is a quote. He said, "The ancient Roman religion must never be censured or condemned by a new one. Or it, Roman religion, or, it, or I'm sorry, or it is the height of criminality to reverse that which the ancestors had defined once and for all. Things which hold and preserve their recognized place and course." In other words, it is a crime to do anything that opposes or undermines the Roman religion because the Roman Empire is at stake. So, the Roman religion was for Diocletian and for many other Romans not simply about personal faith and well being, but it is about the welfare, the preservation of the empire. It is about the security of the empire itself. So you better not be doing anything that undercuts the empire. You see how quickly this becomes political here. There's not a lot of room. And of course the Christians have, they don't have any use for the pagan gods, uh, but they did not deny their existence. And I want to talk about this a little bit here. I think that if if we actually think about this, we can understand where the Christians were coming from. The Roman gods, both the high ones and the low ones, for the Christians, the Roman gods are demons. They actually exist. They're evil spirits. They're faceless, invisible powers. They are malevolent and certainly could not be relied upon to do anything good For the Roman Empire and its people. They're false gods. The Christians saw the Roman gods. As simply pulling people further away from the one true God. And these demons confirmed. These Romans in their error. Demons had exchanged the truth for a lie. And they were destructive forces in the world. This is part of the reason why exorcism was a common practice in the early Christian church and part of the baptismal rite. We talked about this last week, that baptism, uh, the exorcism is part of baptism. We have it in our service today. If you go to the last uh, the 1045 service today, you'll hear it again. You renounce the devil, the world, and all his ways, and so forth. The devil and all his ways, all his works. It was part of it then. Well, with these kinds of, of presuppositions... I think you can see that there's going to be a conflict between the Roman Empire and the Christians. It's only a matter of time. It's inevitable. Uh, Christians had exorcisms to drive out the evil spirits. They prayed to God to protect them from evil. And Roman pagans tried to drive out the Christians and kill them. This is about persecution and martyrdom. This is a religious battlefield with a public clash. Of gods this is a very serious struggle between the Christian God and the Roman pagan evil spirits and it raised some very very important questions especially for the Christians to whom do the pagan Romans belong and to whom do Christians belong whose power possesses whom and whose power is going to be victorious I I, uh, was very pleased to see this morning, I came in the first service at 8 o'clock and got my bulletin and opened it up and started reading the lessons and found that the epistle uh, reading is Ephesians chapter 6. This fits perfectly with this discussion. If you were in the 8 o'clock service, you heard the text and you heard a really wonderful sermon by Pastor Thompson on this text. But uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 is our epistle reading for today. I'm going to read part of it. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm you know the rest of the text paul talks about putting on christ putting on Uh, The gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, taking up the shield of faith uh, and taking on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is spiritual warfare, especially as the as the early Christian Christians see it, especially the martyrs. They know what this is about. And so they recognize that. That they are simply soldiers on the battlefield and that their God will be victorious. And that Christ has already defeated the devil and his demons, as Pastor Thompson said in his sermon this morning. This is the, 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 the worldview or the mindset that these people have as they go off to, uh, to their execution. When Emperor Diocletian decided that he was going to crack down on the Christians, he focused his efforts in, on three things. First of all, Diocletian decided, we're taking out people. In other words, we're going after the pastors, the leaders of the churches, the elders, and we're gonna go after the bishops, which are like the senior pastors for a particular area. So Christians, people, were targets of the persecution. The idea was that if we could take out, this is a typical Roman military kind of strategy. You knock the head, take out the head, take out the leadership, and everything else will crumble. So that's what he did. That's the first thing. What you've got here on the screen here is uh, is an example of this. This is the martyrdom of Cyprian, who was a bishop of Carthage. In 258, he's being beheaded. This is a 19th century, early 20th century uh, painting of this, but I think it shows you uh, the, the drama of all of this. So you take out the uh, the leadership in the church. The second thing that Diocletian focused his efforts on was the destruction of Christian texts. Take their Bibles away and burn them. Take their catechisms away and burn them. Take their sermons that are written, anything that they've got. And by this time, by the uh, end of the third, beginning of the fourth century, we've got books. These are codexes now. And previously they had scrolls which you had to unroll, you know, and they were kind of ungainly. They get kind of big and, and heavy and bulky, but Codex says books are a little bit easy to hide and carry. And so there was a wide-scale effort to take Christian texts and destroy them. Romans are really intimidated by books. They've got books. They keep their laws in books. And uh, they recognize that books are things that uh, contain all kinds of information and knowledge. You've got to get rid of them. So that's the second thing. Take away their books. And finally, Diocletian focused his attention on the destruction of Christian churches. As you know, Christians early on had been worshipping in houses and then made had made very modest little churches by by the end of the 4th century or end of the 3rd century beginning of the 4th century Christians have some pretty, pretty big churches. Churches that can hold hundreds of people. And Diocletian focused the efforts on the destruction of those things. Just simply take them apart, clean up everything. They never existed. Just wipe them out. So he's trying to eliminate the Christian religion in those three ways. Take out the the leadership of the church, take out, get rid of their texts, and take away their churches. I, I have to just point something out to you. We had, at Concordia Seminary, we had a, a PhD student graduated this last spring, and he wrote his dissertation on the history of the Soviet persecution of the Lutheran Church in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Uh, and I was privileged to read this dissertation, which is just marvelous. And you want to, what do you think that the Soviet Union did to try to dismantle and take apart the Lutheran Church in, in Russia? They, they took their pastors and they arrested them. If they didn't kill them outright, they would uh, send them to a gulag in Siberia where they were never heard from again. The second thing they did was take away all their books and destroy them. And the third thing that they did was the Soviets confiscated all the church buildings and turned them into factories or something else. And it was just as if the church had never existed. That was how they tried to eliminate it. Well, religious martyrdom is until the Christians come along. The Romans don't have a habit of taking out any other group. And at our time, we have the advantage of hindsight. We can look back through history and see. And we're kind of accustomed to the idea that Christian men and women and children should suffer and die for their faith in Christ. We know this. This has happened. But at the time that these persecutions were happening the Christian idea of being a martyr a witness that's what martyr means a witness to Christ unto death uh, which was often a horrible excruciating death that idea of being a martyr was new and it was very frightening to the people and these early Christian accounts of, of martyrdom, stories of their suffering and death and their, and their faithful witness, they emphasize that these men and women belonged to Christ and that the almighty God was with them. That's what you often hear in these accounts of their death. And in their deaths, they were victorious over the power of the pagan gods and the power of the demonic forces that were behind them. Martyrdom was seen by everyone, pagans and Christians, as this public spectacle that was witnessed by the entire community. But Christians understood martyrdom as a sign of the power of Christ, that they were being killed on the battlefield of this great religious struggle, and by their courageous witness, In the face of death, the power of Christ and the Almighty God was on display for everyone to see, and they regarded it as a triumph. So many of these early Christian martyrs would come to understand, or certainly people who looked at at their lives, wanted to imitate them. They wanted to be martyrs themselves. They wanted to have the honor of, of dying for Christ. In 308, the year 308, there was a a persecution under Diocletian, and uh, there was a witness to this death. I don't know his name, but this witness wrote about a persecution, wrote what he saw as Christians were being persecuted. And this is what what, uh, they wrote. You could see a youth, not 20 years of age, standing unbound and stretching out his hands, his arms, in the form of a cross, maybe like this. While bears and leopards almost touched his flesh, and yet their mouths were restrained, I know not how, by a divine and incomprehensible power. That was recorded in the year 308. It was just four years before the conversion of Constantine to Christianity. Things are changing, but I I think it's interesting. This observer points out that that the animals did not touch as if they were held back by some invisible power. There are a number of examples like this. I mentioned Polycarp earlier, who was supposed to be burned, but the flames didn't burn him. Uh, the stories of the martyrs of of Perpetua and Felicitas are kind of the same way that the animals were sent out to attack but they didn't really hurt them that much at least not in every case It's just kind of interesting now I I want to point out something in regard to these persecutions especially the great persecution under Diocletian in the late third and beginning of the fourth century as as you might expect Not everyone was able to be a a martyr. Not everyone was willing to be a martyr. And there were people who gave the Romans what they asked for and spared their lives. This happened. Uh, For example, Christians in North Africa, some of whom were even bishops, were arrested by the Roman government. The Romans said, turn over the copies of your holy books, your Bibles, your catechisms. And they, they gave them over. Now, other Christians who would hear about this later on would regard that as apostasy, abandoning the faith. Then the, the uh, Roman government would tell these bishops or other church leaders, they would say, Now, if you, if you renounce Christ, if you renounce the Christian faith, and you uh, are willing to offer a sacrifice to the emperor, you'll be saved. we will spare you. And some of them did. Some of the pastors did. And some of the bishops did. And other Christians. Well, you can imagine as as when the persecution... And they they saved their own lives by doing this. They survived. And when the persecution ended, some of them decided that they were going to go back, including the bishops, they were going to come back to the Christian church and resume their old jobs and posts and and uh... there was a problem that resulted from this there was a group of people called the Donatists and the Donatists were were really that the, the, this is a Latin word, the traditores traditores meaning the ones who hand over uh... we get the English word traitor from this those who had handed over bibles some of these guys had actually handed over christians to the romans for persecution the Donatists said those people those bishops those other leaders in the church are apostate they've abandoned the faith and they can no longer be in the church they're not christians and they certainly cannot serve in leadership roles in the church And the Donatists maintained that the Christian church must be a communion of real saints, holy men and women. The church must be holy. That was the idea. It must not have people in the church who betrayed the truth during times of persecution. So the Donatists asserted that a church with these kinds of people in it was not really a church anymore. Not a Christian church. And any pastors that had forsaken the faith and then came back again, anything those pastors did. If they baptized anyone, if they celebrated the Lord's Supper, if they uh, uh, forgave anyone their sins, it was worthless. It was nothing. It was invalid. So some even said, if you were baptized by one of these people who forsook the faith, it doesn't count. You've got to be baptized again. So, the, there was a big controversy in the church about this, as you can imagine. And uh, it finally was addressed, I think, most decisively by one of the bishops from North Africa who was named Augustine. Probably heard of, of Augustine before. He was a bishop in a city of, called Hippo. And uh, Augustine argued against the Donatists. And he made an important point that I think it's something that we can all recognize today. We know this in our own church today. He argued that that the office of the pastor uh, is what's really important. The office is what is important. It's not the character of the person in the office. And it's, it's the office itself and what God does through that office, through his word, that makes baptism, baptism makes the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper and the forgiveness of sins. And Augustine taught that the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, were affected by the Word of God and not by the character, the sinfulness, if you will, of the person in the office. So that is going to have an impact later on. Martin Luther would pick up that idea later on and characteristically said, you could have a pastor with leprosy. And the baptism would still be a good baptism. Okay, you, of course, we generally try to avoid that today. But, but you see Luther's point. It's not about the character of the person doing the thing. It's about what God is doing through them. So these persecutions were not without controversy uh, among the early Christian church. Okay. We're going to move on now and talk about Constantine, the emperor. And he's really going to change things Uh, rather dramatically here. Just within 10 years of the fiercest persecutions under Diocletian uh, Constantine comes along and is going to change, begin to change. Constantine was the new emperor at this point, a new era era has begun, and Constantine was involved in a a civil war at the time. The, The empire had been divided up into three parts. And Constantine was the Emperor in the West. And he was fighting against another Emperor by the name of Maxentius. And they were struggling for power with one another. This is what I mean by the Empire being fragmented at this point. So Constantine and Maxentius are fighting a civil war and it came to a head at what is called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and you have a, a, a painting of that battle here. Now, we know all about what happened here from the early church historian Eusebius, and some historians have offered some skepticism about just the truthfulness of everything that Eusebius had to say. I'll tell you the story, and you can, you can decide for yourself uh, what you think. But according to Eusebius the events leading up to this battle of the Milvian Bridge were key for uh, Constantine's conversion to Christianity. In the days before the battle, Constantine had learned that the other uh, emperor, Maxentius, his opponent, was using some unusual means to try to gain some kind of advantage. Eusebius suggests that uh, Maxentius was using what he called wicked magical enchantments perhaps some kind of occult black magic or something like that that Maxentius was using to try to uh, gain some advantage over Constantine to, to win the battle so Constantine figured that he's gonna need a little extra help here beyond what his army could normally do and Constantine remembered that in the past the Roman gods had been rather fickle about battles. They didn't always come through. And Constantine remembered that trying to appease the gods was no guarantee of a victory. This is always the problem the Romans have. Their gods are not very reliable. They're not to be depended on. Constantine, when everything's at stake, everything's hanging in the balance, Constantine recognizes this. And then, Constantine remembered that his father, whose name was Constantius, Constantius was a Christian. Constantius was actually one of the Roman emperors before Constantine. But he was a Christian in secret. And he had to be secret because the other emperor was Diocletian, who had this big persecution of the Christians. So, Constantius, who was up in England, he was up in York, where he was based, way out in the middle of nowhere, out there in the western edge of the empire, he kind of quietly kept to himself and worshiped as, the, as a Christian out there in secret. But Constantius had always told his son Constantine that he had trusted God, the Christian God, for help, and only in the Christian God. God had always saved him and always protected him. Well, Constantine's a pagan, he's not a Christian. But he remembered what his father said, and he figured, well, I'll, I'll try. So he prays earnestly to God for help. And while he was praying, according to Eusebius, Constantine received a sign from God. And Eusebius is careful to note here in his discussion of this that what, this is what happens next Is something that I heard from Constantine himself Constantine told me this I heard it from him and that Constantine confirmed the statement with a solemn oath of its truthfulness that's Eusebius Constantine said it was about noon about midday and when he said I saw with my own eyes the sign of the cross of light in the heavens above the Sun Bearing the inscription, by this sign, you will conquer. And I was struck with amazement by the sight, and my whole army witnessed this miracle. So, Constantine says he looked up into the sky and saw a cross of light in the sky. And the voice or sign underneath it, by this sign, you will conquer. That night, Constantine had a dream in which he saw the sign of the cross again. And so, Constantine ordered his soldiers to paint this symbol, the Chi Rho. Chi in Greek is shaped like an X, and Rho looks like a P, and you put them over one another, and they form the first three letters of the name Christ. In other words, the message is, under the name of Christ, you shall be victorious. Constantine has his soldiers paint this symbol on their sword, or their shields as they go off into battle. They did, and they won. And Maxentius was killed, drowned in the river. Well, that's, that's the story as Eusebius tells us. And it appears from at this point on that Constantine converted from paganism to Christianity and never looked back. However, Constantine did not make public, he's like his father at first, he did not make public his conversion to Christianity. He comes back to Rome, he has his triumph, there was this big parade, you know, we won, we won, it's great. But Constantine offered no sacrifices to the Roman gods. People thought, that's a little strange. They noticed that. Well, in February of the next year, in the year 313, Emperor Constantine and his co-emperor, they had co-emperors in those days, his name was Licinius. He was a pagan, this Licinius. Both emperors signed the Edict of Milan in the year 313. This declared toleration of the Christian religion in the Roman Empire. So, in other words, uh, it's okay to be a Christian. The, the Christian religion is, is, is acceptable. Now, we should recognize the fact that this edict actually proclaimed toleration of all religions. But it was clear that the, with the legalization of Christianity, which had very recently been persecuted by Emperor Diocletian, the legalization of Christianity is really now Constantine's intention. Again, Constantine, who is now a Christian, remains tolerant of the Roman religion. He's not trying to get rid of it yet. But what you do find him doing is he's increasingly active in promoting Christianity. And he's going to go uh, to great lengths to do that. So this Edict of Milan in the year 313 effectively brought state-sponsored persecution of Christians to an end. Christianity was now a legal religion, but it was not the official religion of the Roman Empire. It was not the official religion. That would come later under the emperor Theodosius I, who issued the Edict of Thessalonica in the year 380. That was in the year 380 was when Christianity was the official religion of the emperor. Now, for his own part, Constantine was still kind of quiet about his own Christianity. He was not very open about this at first, but later on, he became more open about uh, his Christian faith. He was convinced that the Christian God was the one true God and that only he, the true God, could protect and preserve the Roman Empire. So what you've got here, that's a, I think that's a really important point. The emperor, Constantine, his job is still to try to preserve the emperor and keep it strong and so forth. And he's convinced that the Christian god is the only one that will be able to help him do that. So in a sense, we've kind of replaced the old Roman gods for the true Christian god. And from the very beginning, especially by the time Christianity is made the official religion of the empire... From, from this point on, Christianity and the Roman Empire are inextricably linked. And God is going to be called upon to protect the empire and its borders and its, its people. And we see a good example of this in uh, just a few years later at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. This was the first major worldwide church council at the time. Uh, we call it an ecumenical council because it brought in people from the whole world. Uh, Nicaea was is uh, southwest of Constantinople, which is now northwestern Turkey. Uh, uh, it's on, in, in Asia Minor. Um, and this council was called by Constantine himself. And he was trying to address a couple of problems in the church. They had debates about the date of Easter, for example. They had to get that settled. When do you celebrate Easter? Well, we celebrate it over here. And other people, they said, no, let's do it all the same way. We'll all celebrate Easter the same day. And they set down what we have today, our own process for establishing the date of Easter. They dealt with that, but they also dealt with a bigger problem, and that was some, uh, some discrepancies, frankly, false teachings in the church. And they wanted to deal with those things. I won't get into all of that, but I want to do say that 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 Constantine's concern there was to make sure that the Christian church was united in its faith. Because division of the religion in the empire, Christianity, would cause division in the empire itself. Uh, And so he worked very diligently, in fact, even chaired Constantine, the emperor, chaired some of the sessions of this Council of Nicaea in 325. So he's concerned about the Christian faith, but he's also concerned about the political and social unity in the Roman Empire. And he thinks that consensus on matters of faith and practice can build unity not only in the church, but in the empire itself. What happens in the years after this, very briefly, is that Christianity continues to grow and expand. And Christianity, it's safe now for missionaries to do their work. And so Christianity will rapidly spread into Northern Europe, into the German lands, and into France, and into Spain, and into England. Uh, and up, it will go up into uh, uh, what is today Eastern Europe and Russia. And it's a safe place to go. And very quickly, the people that the Roman missionaries meet maybe aren't Romans anymore. They might be barbarian tribes. They might be Germans or Saxons or Anglos or some other tribe, Goths or something. But yet they continue to do that work and Christianity will spread. Part of the reason why Christianity is able to have so much success in the years after Constantine is because that it became a tolerated religion within the empire, and it opened the doors for mission work and the establishment of the church in the West. So, we're almost out of time. Does anybody have any questions about anything that we have talked about? I've given you all kinds of things to think about today, I know. That's a very good question. Thank you. What is the estimate for the number of martyrs? It's very difficult to uh, to know for sure, because often this was not written down. Uh, I, I think that it's safe to say, and by the way, historians have done a lot of work to try to figure this out. I think it's safe to say that the numbers of, of martyrs under the Romans was in the thousands. Thousands is very safe. Whether it was up into the tens of thousands, maybe not that high. It's, it's maybe not actually as many as we might think. but Thousands is a lot. But it's probably not tens of thousands. Yeah. There were some, there were some mass executions. I'm I, I thinking of one case where they, they basically uh, took a bunch of Christians and exposed them to very cold weather and they froze to death. And I think there were about 70 of them so you do have instances like that, but, but it's, it's mostly these kind of smaller versions where they go in and they round people up. And Yeah, yeah that's a good question. I think the, the impact of, of the persecution and the impact of the martyrdom, though, is, is, is very long-lasting. This, this idea that Christians may be called upon to suffer for Christ and bear witness to him, that really has an impact. And it, it kind of comes back. Uh, in, in, the, in the church's mind as the years, as the years will go on. I, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from their witness, from their example, and there's a lot that we can recall of God keeping his promises to them. We can give thanks and praise to God for what he did for them, even while they, they suffered for him. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Anything else? Worldwide KFUO, a click away, 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton St. Louis, the messenger of good news. Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Manager of Development at KFUO. Are the live worship services important to you? Are you blessed by these opportunities to worship God? If so, would you prayerfully consider supporting our ministry? Call me, Mary Schmidt, at 314-996-1518. You can also give online at kfuo.org. Thank you for your continued prayers and support of Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news.